We've arrived at the week of the Rugby World Cup final, and it's the age-old rivalry between South Africa and New Zealand that's going to play out in Paris on Saturday. England nearly upset the Springboks on Saturday in a thrilling semi-final, and joining myself, Nick Kane, Nick Powell and Chris Hewitt to discuss the future of the Red Rose as well as look ahead to this weekend's final is former England and Harlequins number 8, Nick Easter. Before we kick off this episode of the pod, I just wanted to give a shout out to our friends at Keith Krauss, the UK's leading provider of corporate hospitality experiences. Did you know that they have been offering hospitality experiences at Twickenham since 1979? So they know a thing or two on this. They've got an incredible selection of official hospitality experiences, ranging from a live band, plenty of Guinness on tap, legendary players doing the rounds, some of the best seats in the house to watch the game and loads more. So if you've got a special occasion coming up that you want to celebrate or a key client you're desperate to impress, make sure you get in touch with Keith Prowse by visiting their website, keithprowse.co.uk forward slash Twickenham. I've heard that they're almost sold out of their island packages already for next year's Guinness Six Nations, so I suggest that you guys hurry. We've got our final lineup. Um, it was an interesting weekend of semi-final rugby. It was a bit of a squash match on Friday, uh, which was followed by a near-English, well, in my eyes, miracle on Saturday. Obviously, many had written us off, um, and we got very, very close to getting the job done. Uh, South Africa did edge past one-point win to reach their second consecutive World Cup final. Um, it's the middle of the day on Monday, so two days later now after that game. We'll do plenty of reflecting on the semi-final. We'll look ahead to the final. And joining myself, Nick Kane, Nick Powell and Chris Hewitt is another Nick to do so. Former England and Harlequins number eight, Nick Easter. How are you, Nick? Very good, thank you. Very well. well I mean, I'll be a bit better if we got through to the final, but um, no, all good personally. At what point had you, were you one of the ones who had not really given us a, a, a shout before the game? Um, no, I thought I thought it. I thought it'd be tight. I just think, um, you know, I know from personal experience and obviously from World Cup experience that, uh, um, you know, just just from, just from the intensity point of view, knockout rugby, the emotion, the freshness, England, uh, you know, were were peaking peaking at the right time from that point of view. You know, they'd sort of built in, not not under the radar, but less spoken about them in the group stages because obviously the lopsided draw, you know, I wouldn't say they were written off. Everyone thought they would get through to the quarters and probably the semis. So I'm not sure where that rhetoric comes from, but just whether we finish first or second in our group. But, um, you know, build the building in the group stages. And I just thought, you know, having been a part of it myself, actually, you know, seven with that sort of siege mentality where everyone writes you off and you club together and you know you've got a lot of experience, like we had in 07 World Cup winners. And, and you know, th th this squad has bags of experience. Lions, you know, World Cup final last time, winning, you know, European and, and Premiership trophies that, you know, we would come in in a lot fresher mental and arguably physical state than the South Africans who had played three of the top five sides, you know, in, in the preceding weeks. Um, and if you include the warm-up against New Zealand, probably uh, four of the top five sides out. Well, the other four sides in the top five. Um, and so, you know, that, that goes a long way, as we saw in the last World Cup, um, which is spoken about a lot. You know, England smashed New Zealand in the semi. New Zealand smashed Ireland the previous week. Couldn't quite get to the same levels. Um and England couldn't quite get to the same levels in the final against South Africa. And, you know, when there's small margins, that goes a long way. Um, you then find out about the weather forecast, which, you know, suits the way England play. Um, I know South Africa like to play a similar sort of model, but, um, you know, the, the kick chase is going to be important. And then you, you talk about selection of Stewart, Marla, Cole and George Martin. 
and you're looking at a very strong scrum or one that can nullify the South Africans, which did until those three went off in the pack. Um, and we dominated the aerial battle um, against two, you know, diminutive wingers, world-class wingers, but diminutive wingers that the conditions weren't set up for. So with those things going around, I'm going long-winded here. Um, I did think it would be very, very tight. And I thought we had a very, very strong chance. And, you know, to be honest, we were the better side for most of the game, but you've got to win the game. If, if we accept, Nick, that, um, that Borthwick got that selection pretty much spot on, um, do you also think that um, Erasmus, Ninaba, whoever's really called in the shots there, got their selection around their neck a little bit, especially especially with, with the rain in the air? Um, yes, um, I, th- I think they did. Uh, but, you know, they're paid, they're paid to make the big calls. Uh, and... Um, and I actually, when I was watching it, and I was watching it with family and friends and everything, he said, "I wouldn't surprise me if he takes the halfbacks off at half time." I thought I didn't know, I didn't think he would, I didn't think he'd do an Eddie Jones. But look, you've got a semi-final to win here, you know, and um, you've you've got to make those those calls. And you know, some it's probably a bit harsh on Manny Lebot because the forwards weren't up to scratching and they're the better. And you know, halfbacks, especially in those conditions, you know, you're dictated by that split second of extra time you can get, and he was getting no time, but. I think in the back of their mind, when they realised what the weather would be like two, three days leading into it, um, that they probably got those halfback calls wrong. Yes, I do think that. And then it was sort of, well, we'll see how they go. We've rewarded them for starting and winning the quarter, um, but it's not going too well. And, you know, fair play, you know, they had the balls to do that. Did you not think it came across slightly as not um, a bullyish mentality, but at one point, you know, Lebok, Reinach, Etzebeth, I think it was just those three, but they all came off in the space of about 10 minutes. And it's like, okay, Etzebeth is obviously the figurehead of that pack or certainly one of the two or three. And then your two pivotal positions, it came across to me like toys out of the pram mentality rather than actually measured thinking from, like we say, Rassi or Nina, but whoever's actually making those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sorry, something else. I I was going to say, I'm I'm not sure about that. I mean, I think that they, you know, they'd had a really good win the previous week and um they knew what that they, what you know what they'd got coming off the bench and they knew what they um you know what they could do and they did it um i think that they made the calls at the right time etzebeth was not you know the force that he was against the french um he's a tired you know t- tired man i'm sure you know and um uh, reinach reinach got absolutely awful service from his forwards throughout throughout the whole of it but you know, you know that de Klerk is somebody who's a you know extremely combative. I suppose one of the things is is that when Farrell you know picked up the ball and uh, wouldn't give it wouldn't give it back, <laughs> and Reinach was sort of around him like a a fly trying to get it back. You know, de Klerk would have been in there and bloody well it would have been a um, it would have been a tussle. So uh, I think that they made the right calls uh, for the most part at the right time. Uh, they may have initially. Got the calls wrong, but you know, I mean, Pollard hasn't had much game time, um, and uh, I thought Reinach had a very good quarterfinal as well. So you know, um, it, 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 it's you know, it's a difficult business. They, uh, I think, what we can say is that they had the right twenty-three. And look, I'm I'm, I'm not saying they were, they were obviously the right decisions because they were vindicated in Pollard. You know, kicking them to the win. Snyman, who obviously came on for Etzebeth, he scored the winning try. And it was Faf who 
made the tackle on Billy Vinopola that led him to drop the ball right at the end, which coincidentally he also did in the game in France beforehand. Um, but obviously hindsight hindsight's a wonderful thing. Um and I'm just I'm just wondering whether at the time it just came came across like slightly rash thinking, but maybe Nick Easter, it was just the admission that the selections weren't quite right beforehand. Yeah, I, I agree with Nick. I don't think it was rash thinking. I don't think Rasti Erasmus and Janine Ambar do things like that. Uh, they're very, very experienced, successful international coaches. I think we we can all probably see the, the the halfback. You know, he changed a lot at 45 minutes or 44 minutes against the French, didn't he? You know, to Khaleesi and Vermulinov, you know, guys that probably wouldn't. So pre-planned. Um, the Etzebeth one, I think, coupled with what Nick says, um, you know, the guy's best player in the world this year. It was having probably a quieter game than usual, probably a bit bashed up. But it was, I, I would think it's more to do with the line-out stuff as well. Mostert is... You know, RG Snyman sometimes comes on for Mostert and calls the lineouts, but that's when they're having a decent day at the office there and they can just hit at the maximum height. And Bongi wasn't throwing too well. England were on top of lineout time, and I think they knew that would play a crucial part. Um, so keeping your lineout caller on in terms of Mostert and taking Etzebeth off, I think that was the reason decision at 45 minutes. I don't think it has anything to do with throwing your toys out of the pram or, right, you haven't fronted up. It was probably a little bit to do with that because we know they go on these battle stats if you like and, and they, they track them throughout a game to know when the energy is dipping and when to bring people on but I think also from a tactical point of view the line out was going to play a part alongside the scrum Just one more um, I feel like we should just pay Andre Pollard his dues and Powell I'm going to bring you in here as our well I'm, I'm going to label you our resident goal kicking expert um, did you <laughs> did you well were you concerned that that kick was going over? It's not necessarily a percentage kick. I don't think the stats came up on the screen, but two minutes to go, that's a number, or where, however long it was, maybe a little bit more than that. That's an unbelievable kick. Yeah, he misses. Uh, he, sorry, he scores an awful lot more than he misses. So I think, uh, as probably an awful lot of England fans were uh, up and down the country, there was a kind of resignation to it. If he'd missed it, it would have been a bonus. Um I think there's been there's been an awful lot of talk about the decision in the lead up, the the penalty decision in the lead up to it, um, and obviously that's been the major major point of contention uh, afterwards. But having seen quite a few angles now, I think it was the right call, um, and uh, yeah, and I think as soon as he went to step up to hit it, there was a sense of inevitability inevitability about it. I think that was that would be one thing that might disappoint a lot of England fans as well, was with 12 minutes to go, there was a feeling South Africa were, were going to come back. They got that set-piece dominance and, uh, and, and you just felt that they were going to get at least 10 points. England were just unable to provide a response. I think the thing that England will be cursing will not so much be the fact that Pollard slotted his kicks, where which England England would have definitely anticipated happening, it would have been how they allowed the set piece to run so out of control, and how they missed a few of those chances that came their way in the period between Farrell slotting that incredible drop goal and uh, South Africa hitting back with that first uh, with that try through Snyman, I think it was. So yeah, that that'll be the thing I think that England will reflect on as they're kind of the moments that lost the game. It wasn't just a Pollard penalty, was it? It was kick to touch that, that from which Norster yeah. that, that came up with the try was an absolute beauty. I mean, that that was Henry Slade in the semi final 
you know, two, three years ago. I mean, massive pressure kick. I mean, the commentators on the TV were saying, oh, England face a line out on their 22. Well, <laughs> and then some. I mean, it was a pearl of a pearl of a touch finder that. I mean, he, he may he may not he may not be the most exciting ten in the world, but Christ alive in in knockout rugby, a bloke with a boot like that is worth his weight in gold, isn't he? The whole history of World Cup tournaments tell us. I mean, goal kickers win World Cups more often than not. Yeah, and, and I think that's that that's all the evidence that you need, Ollie, to show that it wasn't a panic decision from the South Africans. I think they must have got there. They must have just well, because they always make their selections really early. And they must have just not anticipated the weather forecast as well as England did. And with half an hour on the clock, who do you want? Do you want a guy who's going to be in a game where the ball is kicked after three phases tops? Who do you want? Do you want the guy who's going to do what, as Chris said, you know, make make the maximum amount of yardage and put the best touch finders and best goal kicks in? Or do you want your exciting creative fly off? You want the former. Well, maybe maybe they thought in advance of South Africans, who, who are not the least arrogant rugby nation on earth. Um, I think it's fair to say, although there are a few contenders. Um, but maybe they thought they'd get hold of England early in that semi-final. And and if they did get hold of them early, because England, are, you know, I mean, as Nick says, they've got through. They've got through on in the weaker side of the draw. There's been increasingly little bits to admire about the England game, but they've not exactly set the Thames on fire. Maybe they thought they'd get hold of England early. And in which case, somebody like Libok, even in the rain, might have come into his own. But when it transpired that England were going to get stuck into them at line-out time, when they were going to win the aerial battle, all the things that, that Nick Easter has, has pointed out previously, maybe that's just what forced the decision. Yeah. They, they, made, they like, made their decisions like, earlier because things weren't happening for them. Much like France did in the Six Nations, actually. That was, that was a pouring game at Twickenham. And... France were able to score some unbelievable tries in that game because they just killed England in that first half hour. And as you say, Chris, that might have been what South Africa were anticipating. I mean, the the joke that was going round, I think a lot of amateur sports clubs in the morning, uh, certainly mine, was when uh, the cricketers conceded 399 <laughs> to, uh, to South Africa in the World Cup over in India. Can England can England's rugby players concede less? That was the big question that I that I had on my lips. <laughs> Look, let's open the England door. Um, and there are two elements to this. There, are, there's obviously reflecting on their performance, their World Cup as a whole. <laughs> where do we go from here? Um, Nick, I'll come to you as our special guest about the sort of style of rugby that England looked to play, and it was, it was exactly the blueprint we expected. Um, obviously, there's the England way, so called. What do you make of the fact that in order to compete with the world's best, we have to go to a blueprint that to the neutral is not exactly it's not rugby at its finest let's be honest no we we've got we've got to we've well, we've got to evolve develop you know i think it's actually deeper than that we have got to uh become much better ball in hand um our, our attacking game simplify everything um yeah the, the set piece the kicking the defense has improved you know to be honest that that was a bit of a shambles and you know in the six nations and, and the warm up so you know that's it. There's, you know, Sinfield seems to be getting his message across there, and there seems to be a buy-in. Is I don't want to hear any of this old flannel about how long it takes for an attack to evolve. I think we've seen certainly from the developing nations in this um, World Cup that actually you don't need mountains of years of time with the same players and same group of players. And one injury knocks you off course. Um, that's a load of old hogwash. They need to develop their attacking game because. 
yes, you will get games like you did on the weekend in those conditions where, you know, there's not much with ball in hand. But if you're able to maybe threaten a few times, you can make inroads like South Africa did when they got their act together. Um, but generally, the way the game is now, you need to be able to score tries. You need to threaten to score tries. And the more often you do that, the better England are going to become at executing and taking those chances because big games are always won about the team that takes the chances when they come along, whether it's goal kicks, whether it's, you know, through great attacking play or whether it's a set-piece breakout play that South Africa did so smartly 10 metres 10 meters out when England thought they are going to maul them. And the more often you put yourself in that position and you're less risk-averse, um, the better we'll be. But uh, we definitely have to evolve that side of our game and it has to happen sharpish. Does this mean that obviously the discourse around this game itself has been, uh, you know, almost overwhelmingly positive? Hope for the future, turnover, new leaf, paves the way for the new era, so to speak. Does that mean that you're not taking it to be that necessarily when obviously what we saw is we didn't score a try that game. Yes, we only conceded one. And obviously throughout the World Cup, you know, by... A game and a half into the World Cup, Joe Mama's forehead had had more try involvements than the whole of England's back. <laughs> you know, does that mean that it's, you know, you take the sort of positivity um, that's enveloping this discussion around England at the moment with a slight pinch of salt in that we still don't have a firing attack and haven't really had one since the semi final against New Zealand back in 2019? Yeah. Um... What's great is uh, that, you know, everyone likes to see full-blooded commitment, big game. The you know, ITV had its biggest viewing figures and uh, we've reconnected with the fans. It, it appears we've reconnected with the fans, which is brilliant because being there in the Autumn Internationals last year, I've never known anything like it. It was it was depressing and, you know, that sort of run, run through for a, for a year, isn't it? But that's great, but we can't waste the opportunity. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think everyone agrees on this call. But for it to happen, in my in my opinion, for it to happen quickly, Steve Borthwick needs to get an outside thinker into his team. I know Felix Jones is coming on side from South Africa. Um, you know, he, he's probably been, you know, ha- how much has he had to do with South Africa developing their game in the last 18 months? Um, you know, prior to obviously the conditions we got on the weekend. I don't know, but at least that's a start um, because otherwise everyone that's there is, has been in and around Steve whether it be at Saracens in his playing days or at Leicester when they won the title. And, you know, we know what their philosophy is and that's great, but you do need another pair of eyes, a fresh outlook, not a fresh outlook, a different outlook on the game and someone that's been successful in the international game. And if that's Felix Jones who's coming on board, then great. But let's hope Felix Jones has more of a say on the England attack than than he had in the South African attack, you know, until the last sort of year. Um, because for the last six years in, with South Africa or whatever it was since 2019. We, we, without wishing to say too much like Gordon Brown, or I do, although I do generally say like Gordon Brown, um, I agree with Nick. Uh, <laughs> it take, takes us back to 2010. Um, I, You've got I, quite I a think, lot of opportunities to say that with, with the panel today. I, I think there's, um, I think there's quite a serious risk of far too much being read into a into that single performance. I, I mean, seriously, Wales nearly did that to South Africa in 2019. I mean, I mean they, they lost just as narrowly, basically. I mean, it, it, we, you know, it was a game that went to the death. They lost it. Wales lost the game at the death. And no, no one, no one pretended that that was a great, you know, um, a great sparking of, of a, a brave new future for Wales. Um, I do think England's attacking game is dreadfully limited. 
and it um I think it's brightened up a little bit with Earl at number eight, weirdly, because he does some unexpected things at pace. And I think that's what England is sorely lacking. It may have been that someone like Zach Mercer could have done the same thing had he gone, although he's probably not as quick as Earl, but he's certainly got sort of Nick Easter type ball skills and um, and all that kind of business. So I do, I do think that the that the England game plan has been incredibly claustrophobic. And I don't really see, without the change that Nick's been speaking about, and fundamental change, that it's going to open out anytime soon. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I agree with that entirely. I think that the attack is stultified. But the thing that can't be ignored is that England are not going to win anything, anything at all, until they sort out their scrum. <laughs> And, you know, it's just, it, this is, it's fundamental building blocks. And they lost the game and the chance to be in another final on Saturday because they got it, you know, they've got their selection wrong all the way along. But the, 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 the difficulties are that if you look at what has happened to scrummaging in England, in, uh, you know, in, in the premiership and maybe to a degree below it, is that, we haven't got any props coming through. That, that's the problem. You know, the fact was that Joe Marler is, is an outstanding loose head. He's from a different generation almost. And uh, Dan Cole's definitely from a different generation. And he, um, and, and good on him, he, he, he restored a reputation that took a, a, a massive hammering four years ago. And they gave England a platform to play off in this game that they haven't had during the rest of the World Cup because these two guys have been coming off the you know the, off the bench the whole time they're clearly the best scrummagers that England have got and you know perhaps the biggest mistake that Steve Borthwick made on uh, on Saturday night was taking them off they should both have played the game out you know it was a it was a massive mistake and the evidence about you know, having props like uh, Ellis Genge and Carl Sinclair, who are fundamentally ball players and good ones too, no question, good footballers, both of them, but neither of them have got the scrummaging gene. They, you know, they're there not because they they enjoy that particular contest, and they haven't been up to it for you know for the for, at, at test level against the best test opposition for the you know the last three four years. And you know what's been going on. You know we've got you know we've got a bloke in Connor O'Shea who's meant to be you know the, the performance director. What's happening with props? Why haven't we got any tight heads? You know, I mean, it's it's you know I'm looking at the um, at the the lineups in the Premiership this uh, this last weekend. You know, one of the games, both of the tight heads, they're not English qualified. You know, there are only, you know, you've only got five games in a weekend. There are only 10 premiership clubs left. What's your view, Nick, on the prop situation in the UK at the moment? Because I I think I agree with what's been said about Carl Sinclair and Ellis Genge and that they're fantastic in the loose and their scrummaging shortcomings were, were exposed somewhat. They're good in the loose. They're good in the loose. They're very good in the loose. Um, but, Nick, I Will Collier, who obviously played at your club, Harlequins, Vara Pavarovskian, 
Nick Schonert. There's not a lack of scrummaging, you know, very strong scrummaging props in the UK, I feel, anyway. Or, sorry, in England. 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 Yeah, look, um, we've got the players. We've got the players. We've got the size. I mean, just the, the sheer numbers. Um, what I've encountered, um, so I'm director of rugby at China, which is National One Club, right? So I've had, I won't, you know, mention names or clubs or anything like that, but I've had a, you know, a few players come on loan, and it's generally props, locks, back back row, um, and uh, in the last in the last year that I've been there, and I'm looking at these guys, and there's a couple here, um, yeah, one was a prop, one was a second row, and they've got a mindset, they're aggressive, right for a start. They've got the size. They're, you know, a couple of big, big guys, right? The feedback I was getting um, from from the academies were, right, clearly they needed rugby, they needed time in the saddle, all that sort of stuff. Feedback I'm getting is there's certain behaviours, right? And this is very much an English mentality, um, i.e. Hitting, hitting objective metrics. Body fat is too high. Don't bring their uh, notebook to a meeting all the time. Their uh, their academy house is a bit untidy, or whatever it might be. Right, so it's stuff that yeah, look, you know, we, we want to be, you know, polite and hygienic and all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, um, when it comes to the deep dark arts of the, the, the front row in the sixty eighth minute of a pressure game. Do you want the guy that's up for the fight and has the weight, has the power and has learned the technique and is hungry for the fight to be able to see you through those moments? Um, or do you want the guy that can bench press, you know, 180, can um, tick all the objective metrics of body fat 100, under 100 mils, but actually when someone sticks it up his ass, he doesn't want to know. Um, and he goes missing. But you know what? He can hit the bleep test times. He can hit all of these... You know, his handling's great. And listen, I'm a hand, I'm a ball, I'm all for skill, skills and all of those sort of a phrases. But, you know, you in certain positions, you've got to do the nuts and bolts. And in rugby, you've got to be bone hard, aggressive. You've got to have a good mentality. But if you've got the tools behind you, um, then that that is a huge bonus. And it's very much the mentality in academies. I don't know whether, you know, the performance director, the RFU and all that sort of stuff, you know, I don't know the ins and outs of, of the, the chain of command and all that sort of stuff and the conversations that the coaches have always found it ever since I've been playing. You know, the really good coaches, the really top coaches have an eye and an instinct and a gut feel for a good player and, you know, what can ignore their foibles and, you know, the, the issues they might bring, which, yeah, occasionally can, you know, um, develop a little bit and manifest. But actually, if you can keep it under wraps and manage that personality or manage those those, those faults, they've got so much more to give that will be beneficial to the team and the individual and the club or the, the nation or whatever it is. The, the, the poor coaches or the limited ones are ones that do it by numbers. Okay, it's easy to have the conversation with the academy kid at 21. You're no longer part of here because you know what? Your body fat's this, your bench press is this, your fitness test is this. And this is what we're seeing. You can't come back in an argument, you know, in a court of law, if you like, and, can, and and contest it. Whereas the good, the brave coach will say, all right, you know, to the guy that has hit all of these things, you know what? You're just not going to make it. You just haven't got it upstairs or whatever it is, or you're just not big enough or whatever it might be. And we, we don't want to go down. You've got to be big. But certain positions, you do. 
right? It's a game of rugby. It's collision sport. And that's what I've seen in the last number of years, being at, you know, Quinn's Newcastle, briefly Worcester, being down at the Sharks in South Africa, but certainly now getting, you know, having got these lone guys on, you know, I'm trying to push their case saying this, you know, I've been around the premiership. This guy should be fast-tracked in there. But, you know, some, some, of these, some of these guys think, you know, they've got to hit certain markers, which actually make no difference to whether they're going to produce the goods in the pressure cooker of a premiership game on a Saturday or not. Um, and that that's stuff that I've just seen. There might be other things going on as well. Um, but I agree wholeheartedly with you. We are not producing right-hand side props, right-hand side locks, although George Martin, I think, has got a fantastic future. And, be, and, and, you know, number eight. Now, I love Zach Mercer. I think he should have gone. I love Ben Earl. And look, you know, you can have a balance if you've got, you know, a six like Courtney Laws or, or Ollie Chesham or what have you. But, you know, those big back row enforcer carrier, that that big right hand lock, that big right hand uh, or that good scrummaging right hand um, uh, prop. We are just not producing in abundance. But I tell you, the players are there. I've been to under 18, under 17 rugby matches, and you see these these giants of kids because of, you know, yes, they are yeah, public schools, private schools and all that because they've got the facilities. And we know how much money's gone into the conditioning and the gym and the sports side of those particular schools. But then it's the next step where I just don't think enough faith, trust, development's gone into them. And, you know, you talk about development for a big, okay, let's say for a big, Lardy, uh, six foot three, six foot two prop, tight head prop, right? And a six foot eight gangly sort of second row. There's going to be a little bit longer time to develop physically, aren't there? To, from the ball handling, from the breakdown, from the, the other stuff, the flexibility, the mobility side, that smaller, more diminutive players in that position might shine at 18, 19, 20 in the academy. But actually, these guys just need another three years for their bodies to sort of catch up with them, if you like, and, and learn it. And I, I don't think enough patience and uh, time and perseverance has been put into that, is, is you know, from my experience of, you know, being in the coaching world and the playing world. As an illustration of what Nick's just said, and, and Nick came before him, I remember when Stuart Lancaster brought in a marginal gain specialist. I think his name was Matt Parker. And he brought him in from the world of pro cycling. And he'd been wildly successful in pro cycling. And a lot of us in the press wanted to speak to Matt um, just to find out what the hell marginal gains were and what he was doing. And Lancaster's regime was slightly reluctant for us to speak to him because they thought that the things he was doing were best kept under wraps, which is fair enough. But anyway, to cut a long story short, Mark Parker finally came up for a, a chin wag and he explained in very broad terms what he was doing. And I said, well, you must be finding rugby a lot more difficult than cycling, Matt. And he stared at me and said, why would you say that? I said, well, everything in cycling is measurable. Everything. You know, where, where, whether you're training or whether you're competing, the whole thing is numbers. You can measure the whole thing. He said, well, that's true. I said, well, you can't do it in rugby, can you? He said, well, you can. I said, no, you can't. I said, because you can't measure a bloke's attitude when he gets a smack in the cob after five minutes. It's it's just not a measurable game in the way that pro cycling or the sports scientists in general sometimes I think believe it to be, and I think so. I think that's just an illustration of the of a, almost a philosophical problem that that professional rugby has in in its sports science and development field. I mean, look, you talk, you spoke actually. So if you talk about someone that we all know or all have watched, is Val Rapalva Ruskin. 
Um, you know, would he have done a job in the last 20 minutes? Would he have done a job in the last 30 minutes? We don't really know because international rugby is, um, you know, it is very is a massive step up from club rugby. But what we do know is from the club rugby that he, he enjoys the scrum. He loves the scrum. Um, and, you know, the sounds coming out about why he kept getting jettisoned, whether it be in the Six Nations or not, is... He didn't take training as, as seriously as, you know, they wanted him to take training. It's like, well, you know, that might be on the outside, but on the inside, you know, I bet you, you know, I'm not there to be honest with you, but, you know, that to me just seems like, you know, as we spoke about, it's sort of a bit of a cop-out, a bit of an easy selection um, to make in terms of, you know, how you reason it with the, with a the certain player and not enough time and thought gone into, well, how do we, probably reduce that laughy jokey you know as i said this is sort of rumors coming out or you know what i've been told how do you reduce that okay but still manage it and still know that's a part of his personality because we want him to be himself and make sure we take the very very best of his mentality towards training and get the best out of it and obviously we know what he can produce on the field because some some players just turn it on when they they cross the white line on a saturday and that will always be the case. As professional as you want it to be, that will always be the case. Obviously, it's so interesting hearing you say that. Joe Marler is obviously very famous for his, you know, not so serious character. You've obviously trained with him countless times. What's what, what's he like in training? Or well, certainly towards the start of his career, like Rapava Raskin is probably a similar age now to when you were training as a club mate with Joe Marler. Yeah, look, Joe, Joe would be hit and miss. Joe would be hit and missing training as I was. I was hit and missing training probably for different reasons. But um, but when Joe was on it, I tell you, when Joe was on it, um, there, there was pro- a Quinns for a certain period. When I retired and I coached Quinns for two years, when he was on it in the week, you knew we, you knew we were going to perform. You knew we were going to perform. You know, he was that powerful a personality that if he wasn't on it, he could probably drag a few with him, which wasn't great. But then again, you know, that's management. That, you know that, that that's what top coaches, directors of rugby, head coaches of England, or whatever it is, you know, how do they channel that to get the very best? But know that there's going to be times when when you can't. It's out of your control. You can't be a control freak and manage by minutiae detail and numbers all the time. You know, you have to 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 a degree realize they're adults managing people. Hardest job in the world. That's why people get paid the top bucks. Whatever corporations are in for it. And sometimes you've got to you've got to let them have a bit of freedom. You've got to let them have a bit of space. But in rugby, as we know, you get that eighty minutes on a Saturday, and that's all that matters. That's all anyone remembers over time. The games, the result, performance, and then maybe individually, how well do you do? No, that's that's very very interesting, Nick. I was going to ask you ask you for obvious reasons. We've mentioned Ben Earl and how good he's been at number eight. Um, I want to know Courtney Laws has announced that he's retiring after the World Cup. He might get, hopefully, he, I'm sure he will get a run out this Friday against Argentina. Um, I want to, you know, pay a tribute to him in a little bit, but in the beyond Courtney era, what's the makeup of your back row looking like? Are you keeping Bernard at eight, even though he plays at seven for Saris? Is Billy, you know, Billy Vanapola, let's be honest, on Saturday, and I know, Chris, you'll definitely agree with me, he would, <laughs> He, yeah, two drop balls and he was slow out of front and allowed Dion Fourie to break towards the try line before the South Africa try. Is he now done in an England shirt? Does Zach Mercer come back in? Basically, Nick Easter, what I'm saying is, what's your England back row going forward for the time being? Well, I think what we need from England back row is, uh, and it's, it's easier said than done, is you need 
just because of the nature of our international season. We don't have an international season like New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, where they have them from June, right? Even though South Africa are now in the URC all the way through. Um, hello, have you got me? Would you, sorry, I'm going to uh, interrupt you. You might have to cut this out. Are you able to send me the Zoom link uh, to my email, please? Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. my battery's low on my phone and I, and I don't actually know where a charger is. Sorry. It's about to die. <laughs> As we say in the West Country, never trust a Harlequin. I, I uh, <laughs> Mate, electricity is very expensive here. And you know what, Chris? Chris, I'm actually in the West Country now, so uh, I'm in support of that. Where, 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 where are you, Nick? I'm Cheltenham. Are you Cheltenham? Yeah. What, in, 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 the, in the rough part or the Georgian, or the Georgian part? Oh, no, no, the nice oh, part. Regency, Le Campton, Regency, of Le Campton Hill. I there's a rough part of Cheltenham. No, oh, no, one. there is. The, the rough part of Cheltenham is rougher than Gloucester. Seriously, my, my, my partner's from this neck of the woods. She she knows a lot about the rough part of um, Cheltenham. I wow. don't want to go any further on her experiences there. The, those are for her. Where is, where is it? They must, they the must not put that part on the walk up to the races. I, I think That's all I, I know think, about Cheltenham. <laughs> what I, you I, also I, know is that he's not living in it at the moment. No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's out towards, um, it's out towards it, the opposite end of GCHQ, basically. Nick, what you were saying about the England back row. So I was basically asking what your back row would be now going forward and how you would manage to sort of balance. Um, I think. At the moment, it seems that number eight, obviously your primary position, the role of the number eight's changed. And the sort of 125 kilo ballast of Billy Vanapola is less effective than the likes of your Ben Earls, your Ardy Surveyors, your Caelan Dorises, who are very good carriers in their own right, of course, but they're just so mobile. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I just wondered what you made of the England balance going forward. Well, yeah, I mean, when, when you're selecting a team, you're always going to look at who your, your best players are. And when I say that, you're right. Not necessarily who's playing best in the Premiership, but who would suit international rugby the most. And what I'd like to see is I'd just like to see, if possible, and I think we've got the depth to do it, um, is in each position have a sort of like for like. Um, so if you look at a back row, um, you know, I, I, I would, the, the balance they had is good. You know, Tom, Tom Curry, good, you know, Really, really good seven. Didn't have as good a tournament as 2019, but support play, you know, defence, you know, is, is jackal ability, breakdown ability, really, really good. Speed as well. You've got Jack Willis there, who can uh, not be his understudy, but, you know, he's be his competition. Um, yeah, Jack Kenningham, obviously being a bit Quinn's bias, but Jack Kenningham, who had a bad time with injury last year, you know, see how he pushes through. But England are actually producing sevens. Where's they had a problem years ago doing that? Number eight, I'd keep Ben Earl there. You know, the dynamism, what he adds here, punches way above his weight, even in small spaces, he can get you going forward. Again, another really, really good guy over the ball. You know, a forward pack needs about six out of the eight to be good, good jacklers over the ball at international level. Um, and then I'd keep the sort of six that Courtney is, you know, and you've got guys like Ollie Chesham, George Martin that can play there as well as second row. It would just be, you know, how many of those guys are actually playing in that position for their club? Um, and I think that, that the, the balance that England had in the back row, I was quite happy with. You know, you've got Zach Mercer, who could obviously um, be, be in competition with Ben Earl, similar type player, as Chris has already alluded to. Um, you know, there's a few, few other players in the Premiership as well. 
Um, and then you've got sort of an Ollie Chesham or a George Martin at, at six. Um, Any mileage you can put in Marrow back there? No, Marrow's best position second row. Um, he's never, in my opinion, never been that effective as a six there. Um, George Martin's one that I think you can really build a back five around in the future. Um, and Ben Earl, I think if you get a good mix there for the rest of your back five, then uh, we won't be going far wrong. But George Martin, I think, hard, hard man. He's got a good head on his shoulders. Again, from reports coming that his old man keeps his feet on the ground, whatever other people are saying about him. And uh, technically, he's absolutely superb. Superb. Breakdown, tackle, carry. I mean, yeah, really, really high quality. Nick, um, what, what are your thoughts about? Um, I mean, the, you, obviously, a few number eights mentioned. Somebody who missed the cut for this um, for this World Cup was Alex Dombrandt. Um, what are your thoughts about him? You know, we 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 seem to produce so many players who um, who who somehow that you know they 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 shine in the Premiership, but they don't seem to be able to uh, make the transition. Um, where, where do you see where do you see him fitting in in the future? Do you think that he's he's got the wherewithal? He certainly got it as a as a as a running handling forward. But do you think he's got the wherewithal to uh, reimpose himself and be a challenge at number eight? No, he's a, he's a wonderfully talented player. He's a big bloke. He's very very, very explosive for a big bloke. Um, what he needs to do, what Alex Dombrand um, needs to get better at is. Uh, you know, we know how wonderful he is in the sort of 15 channel and, you know, the relationship he's got, certainly with Marcus Smith at Quinns and the lines he runs and his hand ability. It's the close quarter stuff uh, for me. I mean, the hard yards really does it for Harlequins um, because, you know, premiership's a different level. You can get away with six or seven forwards doing that. But at international level, you look to your number eight to, to take two or three tackles, like Billy Villabola did went from, you know, 14 to 17, 2014, 2017, when he was the best, well, one of the best in the world. You know, he would win games um, for England, you know, taking three tacklers every time. He, he, he was incredible in that facet. And also from a defensive point of view, you know, hitting, sticking, going beyond the gain line. It's all about gain line as a number eight at international level for me. Um, and, you know, even when you talk about Ben Earl, who might not have, you know, the weight behind him, but you look at, you know, how hard he hits, you know, his leg drive afterwards, you know, um, when he carries. And he hasn't been carrying a lot in the wide channels like he does for Saracens in, in this World Cup. He's been carrying close quarter. He's been the man to get him over the gain line. And his footwork and explosiveness um, and body height and all of that sort of stuff, um, you know, he's doing a job. And, it, you know, it's not just what you look like. Are you doing a job? And for Alex Dombrandt, this season's a massively important season because there is opportunity, but... That close quarter work um, in and around the ruck, you know, off nine, whether it's defensively or carrying, you know, he's got to be winning those gain line metres. He's got to be getting his head in the spokes defensively. He's got to be getting his head in between defenders and getting that go forward for Harlequins to get back in that England side because, you know, otherwise it just becomes a little bit too much of a luxury player. Um, at an international level, you need everyone to, uh, to front up. <clears throat> Look, I'm conscious of time. Um, I think we'll have to move on. But like I mentioned just now, the last thing we'll say on the England front before we do a quick player of the semi-finals and moment of the semi-finals roundup, which we do every week after every round of fixtures, is obviously Courtney Lauder's retirement. We've mentioned incumbents Chess and Martin playing six, but Nick, they're going to have massive boots to fill because Courtney Laws is 
I think, one of the greatest England boards of all time. So, I, agree with you. I, I was I was speaking to an ex-England colleague this morning and I was flinging through the BBC website, said he announces his time. And I, I completely agree with you. I think he's been phenomenal. And I think, I hope people remember him for the last four years. And that is, England haven't played great rugby in the last four years, but he has been the standout performer whenever he's played. I mean, I remember the cover tackle. Who was it against? It was against one of the islands, wasn't it? Um, it was Tonga. It was Tonga. I mean, that cover tackle, his, you know, in Australia last year, was it last year in Australia, the summer, was it 2022? 22. Um, he was man of the series. This World Cup, exceptional. I mean, his, I mean, his breakdown, his breakdown work for six foot seven. I mean, he's our, he's, he's our best jackler, let alone all the other stuff he does. Line out work, you know, he's carrying his leadership as well. Um, you know, it's pretty sad, actually. I think he could have been a great England captain for, for certainly a World Cup. Uh, cycle um and you know going to this four-year stretch you know it's sort of coup de grace or if you if, if you like but although we didn't win the series was he was the best player for the Lions in, in South Africa in, in 2021 and it, you know sometimes people look back and go who the greatest who the greatest well did they win a World Cup did they win a Lions did they win the Grand Slams well he might not have done that but look it's a team game like like none other and sometimes you're just lucky with the coach or the or the generation you have, but as an individual, hundred percent agree with you. Um, you know, you got Richard Hill up there as one of the top blindside flanks. Well, he's right up there with him. He's right up there with him. And Richard was lucky enough to be in a golden generation and and be in a back row that that stayed together for a long, long time. And yes, we know the attritional nature of the game now doesn't allow us to do that in the northern hemisphere um, with the blocks of international games, but. He's right up there with Richard Hill, right up there. His late flowering or his Indian summer or whatever you want to call it. I mean, as as Nick says, those last three or four years have been tremendous because there, there was quite a long spell, part of it due to injuries and what have you, but it was quite a long spell when you wondered whether he was ever going to be as much as the sum of his parts, really. But he's gone way beyond that in the last three or four years, I think. It, it's been a, 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 a tremendous late career blossoming by him and I've got every respect for the bloke I must admit I mean the real you know a real hallmark of players at at, at international level and 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 where England have been lacking in the four years since uh, Japan has been consistency you know that consistent driving consistent high standards and producing at at the level and as you've as you've alluded to you know he has done that Oh, in a in a in a in a in a pretty dismal period, he's actually pulled England through, um, you know, to their best periods in, in that. But remember him when he first started off. I mean, that bloody exocet tackling. <laughs> <laughs> he, he did. I mean, I think he in the end it was it, it was sort of almost kamikaze stuff because he was doing himself. Um, initially, he did a lot of damage to a lot of people, and then he started doing a bit of damage to himself as well, I think. But he's been a fantastic uh, player for Northampton, and he's been uh, he, he's been a blessing for England in a, uh, in a in a in a in a pretty rough period, um, and it shows his character. Yeah. Add to next point about consistency as well. He always had the attitude of taking responsibility for the situation and just getting on with it, just getting on with it. Whatever was going on in front of him, whatever the game plan was, whatever the the situation was in the match, just get on with it and just get and and 
you would rarely look at tackle stats after a game with him being anywhere under 15, even if England had dominated the ball like they did against Japan, where he made 15 tackles. And it was that Japan game as well, which I think epitomised that action of taking responsibility and playing what's in front of you and getting on with your job when the ball came off Joe Marler's head and he picked it up and scored only his second international try, which if it hadn't happened, England were in big trouble in that game. That, that was it was a you know it was a fantastic show of taking responsibility in a situation leadership and it summed up for me his entire career of just getting on with business no matter what yeah i think you've all put that wonderfully and well like i sort of alluded to at the start i think if you put together a sort of all-time England 15 certainly since the start of a world the World Cup era I think he's certainly in the discussion at the very very least um so no a hell of a career corny and he's one of the guys who retires whilst he's still playing out of his skin which is obviously very sad from an England point of view because no doubt although his body might not be up to it the way he's playing he'd contribute um but he will definitely definitely be missed um okay Player of the semi-finals, moment of the semi-finals, and then we'll do a quick half hour on the final, maybe 25 minutes. How does that... Nick, is that okay with you? Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. All right, sweet. Uh, actually, I'll start with you. Who is your player of the semi-finals and moment of the semi-finals? Goodness me. Um, well, the moment's got to be that scrum penalty, isn't it? <laughs> like, yeah. Right, right at the end. Um oh, moment of the England South Africa game. Um, I mean, that that's the talking point, isn't it? That's the, whichever way you look at it, whether it was, you know, scrum dominance for the last previous four scrums and, or, or whether you feel hard done by, but, you know, ultimately I think you've got to suck it up because the the picture was painted for the referee. Um, player, um, I'm trying to, uh, be a Kiwi. Um, struggling here. Who, uh, from from Friday night, I can't remember who the standout Kiwi was. You could pretty much pick any of them. I know. You could justify try, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to force Frat Shannon Frizzell in there. And the reason I am is, which we'll come on to the final, is New Zealand, who didn't in the first game or um, in that World Cup warm-up game, have Frizzell at six and Geordie Barrett at 12, who make an inordinate amount of difference to New Zealand. Now, Geordie, I thought, was up there along with Sam Kane and Ardy, man of the match against Ireland, so I'll ignore him. Shall I just say Shannon Frizzell then? I, he was going to be my pick. I think Shannon yeah. was outstanding and he would have been my man of the match, as good as Geordie was. Um, but yeah, so you've stolen mine as well there. Chris, I'll come to you. Um, I would go... Um, player of the semi-finals... Um, I mean, crikey, as as Nick said, there, there's a load of all blacks who could get into that. I actually go with George Martin, part, partly because I know it, I know it's not a direct, like in a boxing ring kind of thing. But if if you see off somebody as good as Etzebeth, if you're all over, if you're all over a South African pack for a chunk of time, and they end up taking your opposite number off off the field because he's having a rough night and he's a player that good, then that's a bit of a feather in your cap, however however, which way you want to frame it. He's also bright enough to wear a scrum cap so he looks less like Russell Brand, which I think is a really, really clever thing from George Martin because he'll go... Um, <laughs> he'll, 
better, he'll, he'll, he'll go better watch yourself. <laughs> I know. I thought. I thought. I, I thought he was. I thought he was terrific. And my moment was the Pollard kick to touch because that was the oh shit moment for England. Yeah, I, I think that was that that moment changed the game from England saying to themselves, "There's not vast amounts of time left here. We can do this." We can, you know, we've, we, we've got this. If we get things right, we've got this. And suddenly there's a pearl of a touch finder and you're right in Rats Alley. Mm. And I think they might have looked at each other then and thought, ah. Mm. Kano? Um, it's interesting. I mean, I, I would... Um, I mean, we've talked about the Pollard uh, kick, but I was at the stad on Saturday night and it was filthy conditions and it was a massive, massive pressure point. And, it, and as you've just alluded to, he'd already, he'd already set them up with a great, uh, a great touch finder earlier on. Um, I thought his kick was, I mean, it was straight down the middle. And um, it was probably on the angle. It was certainly 50 metres. And when you're on a pitch, which is like a, a sort of, you know, a greasy soup bowl, I just think it was a fantastic uh, piece of, you know, of, of, of match play, moment match play. You know, he had to, he, he had to hit it and it, he hit it so cleanly and it whistled through the poster. Everybody saw, saw oh, well, it was a, a, a foregone conclusion. Well, it bloody well wasn't uh, at all. And uh, I thought it was a fantastic, um, you know, just great temperament, you know, and, and great technique. Um, Dave, Dave Allred thought there were 12 things wrong with that kick, by the way. Did he? <laughs> did he? Well, <laughs> I just, me, I just made that up out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> it went through me. That's, that's what counts. But um, uh, yeah. the other, you know, I mean, look, there are so many, but Oxenche, I mean, you hmm. can't um, uh, overlook him and the, the bloke who came on on the other side, Vincent Koch as well. You know, I mean, they, uh, I, I think that the penalties, the four penalties that they got were split two and two. I think Sinclair Koch, you, you know, on Sinclair's side one and uh, uh, two, and on Genji's side two as well. Uh, but Nche is a force of nature. Yeah. I mean, he's about—I think he's about five seven or five eight, and he's about five seven or five eight wide as well. <laughs> and um, he just ha has—I mean, you can see England sort of go, you know, go at them. They, 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 he had one scrum against Cole, I think. Yeah, where Cole went at him. And he he absorbed it, and then he exploded. They drove him. They drove him off the ball. Yeah, yeah. There, so, was, there wasn't there wasn't a penalty, so nothing got made of it. But actually, they they you know that's when you did have Marler and um, yeah, Cole, and that was his first scrum coming back on, wasn't it? They, they did. They drove England back. But but the the real thing and the reason that I said earlier that I would have why I would have kept Cole and 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 Marler on was that England were in were not in complete disarray. They were not backwards, but they didn't disintegrate. No, and um, uh, but so anyway, listen, I'll 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 I'll, I'll leave it there. I mean, I, I've got another one as well, but um, I I don't want to take take uh, all all Nick's uh, ammunition away from either Nick Powell. So um, yeah, 
Yeah, go on, pal. Round us off before Kano comes in off the long run again. I've got uh, my moment of the semi-finals uh, when Buffelli put Argentina ahead in the third in the third minute of the game. Uh, you know what Argentina managed to do with that lead. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I actually think Owen Farrell, again, it wasn't consequential in the end, but Owen Farrell's drop goal was was a really remarkable moment. It was a moment where I think England fans could start to believe, got that two-score cushion, I think, for the first time in the game. Beautifully struck. And I actually thought, apart from him being marched back, which was a which was a pretty, pretty bad moment, uh, I thought he led the team very well. And that was that was another, you know, epitomizing moment of that. Um, I'd say my player, actually, again, it's a little bit a little bit of a dull pick, but I thought um Aaron Smith on Friday night, he was just so horrible for those Argentinian forwards yeah, either side of the ruck to play against. It's just the exact just a nightmare, nightmare, nightmare player. You know, every uh obviously New Zealand's speed of ball was was so much better than Argentina, but he utilized it at almost every occasion he could. And for those and it was just it just sucked the life out of those those front five forwards who probably felt that if they were able to retain possession and they were able to slow the New Zealand ball down, they had a chance. He wiped that wiped that off the face of the earth. So, yeah, I thought as as poor as Argentina were, New Zealand were outstanding. Um, and I would and I would yeah and and I would I would pick him out as as the man who just drove them forward. Obviously, we, ha- we haven't spoken about the All Blacks um, too much, and obviously almost with very good reason, because we're about to. Um, thanks for doing the roundup, guys. I will use that as our transition into the final. There's no Northern Hemisphere team. Um, I think all of us, when we did our predictions at the start, predicted a final with a Northern Hemisphere team, and I'm sure you would have got decent odds on neither France nor Ireland making it to the final at the start of this tournament, um, which, yeah, that is that is what it is. But what it is, what we do have is... A rerun of the nineteen ninety five final, which is the most iconic World Cup final of all time, and you've got the greatest rival in rugby history between rugby's two greatest nations. Um, Chris, I guess. Well, Nick and I weren't born in nineteen ninety five, but take t- take us back to nineteen ninety five. Um, I was um I was there um uh, for that final. It was the first World Cup I covered. Um. It was an extraordinary event, um, not least um, with the Mandela uh, with the Mandela dimension to it. I mean, the, the, he was sitting just behind me, old Nelson. Actually, bless him. I mean, the, the number of people who said, "Who's that old bloke next to Hewitt?" was um, uh, were almost zero. But it, it's um, <laughs> it, it, it was it was a fantastic event. It was a fantastic event. Um, in terms of the South African sort of nation building as it was as it was developing under under the new under the new sort of political setup there. It was an extraordinary cross-cultural, cross-community uh event right the way through. Um I don't know if any of us felt that the South Africans the, the box, I mean, I mean they they were so recently back into our international rugby, they'd only been back in um around three years, a little under three years. Um I'm not sure how much anyone knew about them or any uh, by by definition, we didn't know anything about them in tournament rugby. Uh 
And the All Blacks were bewilderingly brilliant all the way through the tournament. I mean, it, it, they they played the Lions in 93, and it had been a traditional old Lions, All Blacks sort of tussle up front. There wasn't much width in, you know, any of the games. Uh, and suddenly the All Blacks are running around, not just with Lomu, but there's Andrew Mertens, and there's Walter Little, and there's Glenn Osborne, and there's Jeff Wilson, and Josh Cromfeld, and they were extraordinary attacking players. And they were unleashed. I mean, the rugby, the attacking rugby they played was just as dramatic. In fact, more dramatic, given the fact that it came out of pretty much nowhere. Um, it was the kind of rugby that they treat us to now that we become used to. Um, they're a brilliant attack inside. I mean, with with 15 ball handling players, it seems to me. Um, you know, the great Sam Whitelock is probably the least comfortable bloke with the ball in his hands of any of the current All Blacks, and he never drops it. So that tells you what skill levels they have. Um, so it was, a, it was a fantastic game, brilliantly refereed by my old mate, Ed Morrison. Um, and it, I mean, obviously, the, the, the extra thing, it, everyone expected Lomu to run over people. He was gang tackled to it in an inch of his life. Uh, but it was on a knife edge. That game was on a complete knife edge all the way through. It was always going to be, I suppose, a one kick decides it um, contest. And that's how it turned out in extra time. It's one of the great events I've ever I've ever seen. I mean, it was it was Ellis, Ellis Park at its most intimidating, but in a in an amazingly vibrant way. There was there was no South African arrogance about it at all. It was just a massive walk into the unknown for a country being reborn, basically. So if that's not putting it in too grandiose of a fashion, that's how I felt about it. Chris, in terms of the on the field action. Is do you think the two teams are are in a kind of well play similar styles to what they did in 1995 in terms of New Zealand having these amazing running backs and South Africa being the best team without doubt at, the, at those fundamentals up front? Well, I mean, South, South Africa are pretty damn good without the ball. Um, um, that's for sure. I mean, the, the, they didn't have they didn't have an overpowering scrum. Uh, in 95, I mean, they had old Bailey Swart on the tight head. I mean, he was, um, you know, he was on his last legs, really. You had the young Osterant, but he was a young player at that point. They didn't quite know what to do with the back five of their scrum. They eventually shifted Mark Andrews out of the second row and stuck him at number eight. Um, they had Joost, Van der Vesthazen, who, who was, was, was a handful at, at, at nine. Joel Stransky was largely a, a kicking ten. Um, yeah, Stransky and Pollard, you could say, are um, are peas out of the same pod. Yeah, some, yeah, you would say, you, you would say. So I would say that the the, the South African uh, centres were a bit more creative um, in 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 the ball playing sense than the South African centres now. I mean, you had Henny Larue, who it was a, a an outside half basically. Was but I mean, it's a different age, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's, look, I mean, it's, it's a completely different age. But 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 yes, I I think in the general terms that you're describing, I think the All Blacks are the, are the guys with the running game and the box. The box are um, as always very very well equipped to shut them out of the game without the ball if 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 things go well. So it, it's a, a wonderful contrast of style. Yeah, it was a fan, it was a fantastic occasion. I mean, like you, I was in Ellis Park that day. It was a fantastic occasion. I wouldn't say it was a, it was a con, it was a sort of um, a game for the purist in a sense, you know, because they cancelled each other out. You know, I mean, it was it was brutal, it was, um, and there was nothing in it. 
nothing in it at all. They worked out a plan for Lo for, for Lomu, and it worked. Um, and uh, it came down to the finest of margins, a little bit like um, it, it has for them against France and England in this World Cup. So, and, the, you know, I mean, look, I mean, sort of taking it on to, um, you know, to this weekend, are they the, are they the same? No, they're not the same sides that they, they were then, I don't think. Um, but the margins are likely to be... <laughs> about as tight the only thing that you'd say is is that there's one side going into it who's pretty well rested and um as uh you, you know and the other one has um has got a fatigue factor i do think that the think highlight of that game apart from the nelson mandela thing was when the all blacks in extra time brought on richard Lowe, it tight head and ed morrison said to him this has been quite a clean game under the circumstances i don't need you cocking it up <laughs> do you think um with Rassi with Rassi Erasmus constantly wanting to push the boundaries and be innovative or Machiavellian, whichever way you want to go about it, do you think he'll try and locate the chef that was at the All Blacks Hotel back in '95 and <laughs> fly him in? And you know, no one will recognize him because it's uh, 28 years later and fly him in for the, for the meal the night before. Well, they won't recognize him because it was a woman called Susie, apparently. Oh, right. Sorry, I, didn't, I had no idea who was accused. I think you know. <laughs> no idea who was accused or whether it actually um, happened. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, that was, uh, well, who who knows what the hell happened there. I mean, there was a bit. Nobody's ever managed to track her down, Nick. No. That's the thing. She, <laughs> she disappeared into the sort of realms of myth, I think. <laughs> Until she's appointed poisoning coach by Razzie. Yeah. Well, yeah, good old. I, I do actually think, though, uh, that, that Erasmus, that all black side is pretty settled, isn't it? I mean, I mean you, you could name... I mean, they may have a, a a decision to make it hooker, maybe because, but they're picking from from some strength there. But probably Cody Taylor gets a nod, you'd assume, and they have to decide which, which of three sort of top end second rows start the game. I mean, you were might would they bring Retallick back, stick White Whitelock on the bench, um, and uh, you know, on the on the basis that the the most experienced guy sees them home. Who knows? But everything else is in place. I do think Erasmus has got more selection decisions to make. And he's than, got, than and, and, he's got and he's got a potential, um, you know. I mean, look, Umbanambi has <laughs> has has played has played pretty well, but since you know, since Marks went, he's had to carry the load pretty well. Yeah, and, and, um, and who knows if he'll be available? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's another that 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 that's another uh, <clears throat> hornet's nest. But um, you know, I mean, if he is a, he, he, even if he is available, if he's got to go another full eighty. You know that's a um, that that's a big a, a big call. You know, I mean, he's uh, he looked as if he was um, a, t a a very tired man at the end of uh, at the end of proceedings on Saturday, and um, he was ca he was also captaining the he, you know at that stage he was also captaining the side. Hmm. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I yeah. I would say and, that the there might be another twenty onto that eighty as well. Given how closely matched the teams are, that you know, yeah. making making your subs on forty five minutes for a, for an hundred minute game, uh, mm. if you include extra time, you know, you're spot on about him having a lot to think about, Nick. Mm. Are, are we are we assuming that Libok is not going to start the final? I am. I don't see how you make that call. Like we've we've spoken about Andre Pollard being the knockout animal. 
how do you not how do you not pick him? Well, the issue. I mean, I feel bad for Manny Libok, obviously, um, and it's the type of thing where he might be affected long term. Tell you what, Neat, old Neenaba was asked uh, about this on Saturday night, and. Um, you know, he just he 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 handles himself very well in in press conferences, and he just said he said, "Look, Manny understands like every every other player in this that this is about the team and it's about South Africa, and that is the you know that is the, the you know the beginning and end of it. And in a in a sense, I mean, I think I did." I mean, who knows what the feather, weather forecast will be? If it's for rain again, then maybe it will be Pollard from the from the get go. But um, if the conditions are good, I don't know. Well, that's the thing, and that's the thing with Razi Rasmus. There's a million variables that he'll be, you know, he'll be going, that will be going through his mind in the next couple of days. For once, though, I think this South African selection might come a little bit later in the week. Than it has done in the last two years, but let's see. But and and look, there's another thing regarding re, regarding Libok is that he was the uh, fly half when they ripped New Zealand to shreds at Twickenham about mm. six weeks ago, seven weeks ago. So, and he played extremely well. So you know there are there there are sort of multi layers to it. Let's put it that way. If if you if you if you and I'm sure it never happened to you, Nick. Um, correct me, but he, I mean if you would been pretty much dragged off the field under those circumstances in 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 big time tournament rugby how easy would it have been um do you think to sort of get yourself back up for the following weekend for an even bigger match if you if you just had the win taken out yourselves to that extent and in the glaring publicity of a semi-final that that would all come down uh chris to the environment that you shared for the last years the world cup warm-up whatever it is because if you're absolutely clear, and there's no doubt, you know, Rassi and, and, and Nienenbar dr- drilled a message and, you know, you heard that's what Dwayne Vermeulen said to Victor Matfield on text when he wasn't selected against Ireland. One team, one mission. Um, and you put the team first. But but also, if you also accept that, you know, arguably the two things that a player wants is communication and honesty, you know, how brutal the honesty is, you know, is it, it depends on the personality type. But... You want to know where you stand, what you've got to work on, what's going well, and and you you do want to know it. Is that if if the environment sets up, so Manny Labock, right, the cold light of day now, what are we two days away? Okay, go through your game with you know the head coach and the expert in that area, with the attack coach or whatever, or game management, and you go away and you work at it. And then if you are selected, you know whether it be on the bench or starting, you then use the training time. You're doing your detail. You're getting your study right, and also, you know. Again, it depends on the player. Some players put it to bed and they go, you know what? I didn't perform. I'm going to go out there, put me under more pressure in the game. Whatever it is, I'm going to nail this now. I'm in a good frame of mind. Other players might need the game you're talking about. Bring up the All Blacks uh, warm-up game. This is how well you play, mate. This is what you can do. And I think if the environment's been set up, um, which it appears to have been you know, throughout Rassi's tenure, that the team comes first and there is honesty with each other, then... Um, it won't take him as long as, you know, perhaps what other people think in terms of, oh, my God, this guy's confidence is destroyed. He's going into the biggest game of his life, whether he's involved or not. Yada, yada. And, you know, again, you know, that's that's a head coach or director of rugby earning their, earning their shilling, isn't it, really? Yeah. I was just, well, we're one more discussion away from predictions, I would say, from everyone. Um, so get your heads around that and I'll be obviously um, doing the rounds. But 
one thing I was looking at was the path to the final, the route to the final for the respective teams. And the South Africa points difference is across every single game they've played, including knockout stages, is plus 118, plus 119, something like that. New Zealand's points difference is plus 250. So it's a big, big difference. And we speak about South Africa, maybe they're beaten up, but also, and Nick, again, I'll come to you um, about this while we've got you. The All Blacks have only really been tested twice. And do you think they could just come into it? There's any chance they come into it a little bit undercooked? Or is this a New Zealand team where they've got your white locks, your italics, your canes, your smiths who have done this, you know, well, World Cup final in 2015 for a few of them, World Cup semi-final in 2019 for a lot of them? Yeah, well, that's arguably why uh, we're having a discussion last week, you know, amongst fine margins. Why why did they beat France and Ireland? Because France and Ireland didn't have any players that you might have had one or two that have experienced winning knockout rugby. And the All Blacks and South Africa did. Um, but yeah, the, 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 there could be that. I don't think they will. I think they've learned their lesson. You know, certainly, you know, you, know, you hear the sounds from last week. You know, they, when they fell to England at the semi-final, their level of training, not necessarily intensity, but detail and and, and refocusing wasn't on point. You know, the guys that are around then have learned their lesson from them. Um, so even with the ease of which they coasted through, you know, you take the advantages from that. And, and let's not forget the 35-7 shellacking they took, the greatest loss in all that history at the end of August. I mean, if that's not a motivating factor to know what you're up against more than any other team in the physical and nutritional war, then you know, they shouldn't be in the final and these guys should be in the final, you know, they've timed it perfectly. They had a great game plan last week. Um, they're hitting their straps with a group of top, top players that, that, that are peaking again. Um, South Africa's point of view, you can argue they're tired, but most of their, their players get taken off after 45 minutes. So, and I, you know, knowing what it's like myself, when you get taken off after 50, 55 um, or 80 minutes, your body, your body feels a lot fresher. A lot, you know, it's not a direct correlation to the minutes played. Actually, that last 20, 25 minutes when you're either saving face or trying to win the game or trying to hold on or trying to stretch away, you know, that does take a lot out of you. So so they have been rested. And I'm sure that Rassi and team will be from a motivational side. Right, lads, you know, as a forward pack, you're probably never, you know, you're probably out of 10, four to six most of you in your individual performance. You're representing South Africa. That's what you showed him last week. And he'll know how to uh, press the right buttons to motivate them. So I don't think fatigue will be a factor for South Africa as much as they played, you know, three of the three of the top five and England, you know, England at their best um, in the last six weeks, seven weeks, whatever it's been. Um, I, I think both come in pr- pretty fresh mentally. Because um, I also think it was half for South Africa last week and New Zealand to a degree that everyone was talking about the final being them too after the quarterfinal wins. And as much as you talk it down or you try and address it, you know, it's going to be in the back of some people's minds. Now, New Zealand obviously dealt with it better, yeah, weaker opposition on a, on a better night for their type of rugby. Um, but I, 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 I don't think, you know, that can't be a factor. It's a final. There's no way. Even with an extra day as well, there's no way. South Africa had an extra um, played on Sunday when they scraped through Wales last, last tournament. And we know what happened in the final. Um, you know, when they had six days and and England had seven, well, actually, they've got seven days and New Zealand, they've got eight. So they do have an extra day. Mm. Mm. The way you're talking and we're all talking, it seems like it's on a knife edge. 
Um, obviously, two very, very different styles, two very, very different parts to the final. I think it's probably prediction time before we wrap up for today. I don't want anyone sitting on the fence. I want a winner and a winning margin. So I'm going to come to the king of sitting on a fence, Chewy, first. Oh. Well, Ollie, Ollie, quickly, do you just want to throw in the uh, third post playoff into those predictions as well? You can do, yeah. Yeah, I think it's just a nice, just a nice touch. Yeah, it's a really nice touch, mate. Let's throw in the third. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, when I said that, I thought I thought this was going to be deleted. I hope it still is. <laughs> it's not going to be deleted, mate. <laughs> England are still in this tournament. Come I don't on. even. I don't even want to go there. That game should be chucked out. <laughs> no one. I'm no one wants to open that door. No one, think... no one wants to play. It's horrible. It's yeah. horrible. It, and 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 I don't think it's ever been a good. I hope Harry. I hope Harry Arundel plays, scores another five tries, becomes the first winger to ever score ten tries in a World Cup. That that'll be fine, but I, I think that's a rubbish game. It's well, my, my, I just I just hope Steve Borthwick and Co have let the team unwind properly after three and a half months of yeah. the intensity they would have been under, and you know the level of focus and. He says, right, lads, let's enjoy each other's company for two days, then enjoy your family for another two. And I tell you what, let's get together on Thursday or whatever and have a light team run. Chuck it about. Chuck it about a bit, yeah. Great and on a scale of one to ten, how really... likely is Sportswick to come up with any of that? Well, I know. But look, they play. No, I'm yeah, just, I'm just trying to look on it. In, in that, get that, those that, bronze that. medals. Get them in the no, hats. What was... Actually, Nick, while we've got you, obviously... <laughs> They're different fixtures and they're at different stages in the tournament. But the, your last game in a Rugby World Cup, it was obviously, you know, the result was a foregone conclusion. And that's not true with the third place playoff. But for for many, it's a dead rubber. How did you guys get yourselves up for that game? Oh, well, that was, um, it was different for me that, Ollie, because I got called in. Yeah, I know. So yeah. it was sort of right. I got called in. Okay, I've done the training camp. I know it's my last game in England shirt, although it's Uruguay. Um, my but we we went up. It was Man City, the stadium at Man City that it was played in. We stayed where we always stayed when Quinns played Sale as well. I can't remember the um, the hotel, but oh, it was it was like a you know it was like a it was, you know he'd been at a funeral for an entire week. I mean, boys did not want to be there. Really? I mean, you know the the natural negativity, you know, which you don't blame anyone for being knocked out of your home World Cup was just. You know, it was in the air all throughout the all throughout the week. It, you know, we hardly trained. Um, you know, even the coaching staff didn't want to be there, and you could tell that they had no enthusiasm for the training session. But look, that that's a bit of a darker place than um, you know, playing. You know, you got to a semi final. Yes, you want to be in the big game, but um, I think Patrick should... must have cheered you up there, eh, Nick? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, look, Gatland. Gatland famously, they were two nil down, two nil down in in South Africa in in oh nine, dead rubber last game. I think the lads had one training session, enjoyed you know safari and socialising and what have you, and turned up and said, lads, you all know how to play and get yourself up for a big game. You're still representing here; it's still a test match, and you know you've got to trust these guys that they're not going to go there play a game of touch rugby. Yeah. Um, but I do think there needs to be a period of unwinding because. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, naturally they'll be disappointed, but with everything they've been through, I think it's the right thing to do personally. Yeah, yeah. no, obviously very aware that they're two very different situations, but you're right in that it's the balance between obviously getting over the loss, trying to stay positive, and also trying to unwind. So it's no, it's just interesting to hear. Right, no, South Africa. Sorry, go on. Right, South Africa in the professional era 
have never beaten Australia or New Zealand in a meaningful World Cup game. Now, what I mean by that is third place playoff in 99, South Africa did beat a New Zealand team that had been on the last for a week. But outside of that, in the professional area, South Africa, when they've won World Cups, have never had to come across Australia or New Zealand. Australia obviously knocked them out in 11 in 99. New Zealand won the group game last time and, you know, uh, beat them in 03, didn't they? And uh, in 15 as well. Um but I, you know, I don't think many people are going to write about that, but it's just something interesting that's uh, yeah, statistic, really, from a South African point of view, given that they're such World Cup animals. Mm. I don't think Rassi and Nina Bar are going to be mentioning that. Boy, <laughs> ah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but Ian Foster might. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I suppose they, they, they won the big one in 95, though, didn't they? Uh, they... Professional, professional era. Ah, right, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Got to get that in. When you took your own chefs. <laughs> they, were, they, they were all making a mint. They were all making a mint even then, I reckon. But it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's boot money and boot money. Um so I look, as far as the final's concerned, I'll be I'll be quick. I, I I tip New Zealand at the start of the tournament. I think they win uh by half a dozen. Um, but I th- there are two there are two things I would mention. That this is this is assuming that Sam Kane is gonna turn in another performance along the lines of the stuff he's produced um over the last couple of weeks, particularly in the quarterfinal. And the big one is if Moinga if Moinga's got to kick his goals. If he if he if he kicks like he did against the Pumas, then South Africa win. Hmm. I think that's um, although I mean they can always turn to Geordie Barrett, who is as you as as I keep on saying is my new god. If you were going to invent a twelve in a laboratory, you come up with something looking very much like him. Uh, and I think he could be the difference maker. Assuming Moanga cooks kicks his goals, I think New Zealand win by six. I forgot that you predict New Zealand at the predicted New Zealand at the start of the tournament. Yeah, God, that's going to have to be some dropped in our noses if if they do win. I'm the man to do that. <laughs> we wrap your face in it when you get it wrong. So I uh, I will very much be receptive to you doing the opposite. <laughs> uh, let's go with Kano. Well, now he's tip tip New Zealand. I, I think I can't. <laughs> 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 I've got anyone would think we weren't fellow socialists, Nick. <laughs> I've written down I've written down New Zealand 23, South Africa 18. I think I'm gonna reverse that. I'm gonna do a reverse merit. <laughs> Listen, they're um they're they're two great sides. Um I I I, I sort of the the Moanga thing is 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 important because he was four out of eight against um uh, uh, Argentina but I suppose after a time it didn't matter um but it does matter and uh it's weird because when you consider Umbanambi who has been a very you know a pretty sound line out thrower for the you know the last four years and um him having an off night on um on Saturday, and Moinga's uh, goal kicking—they're two key players in uh, in both lineups. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I can't call. I I, I really can't call stuff like that. I've seen Moinga kick extremely well. 
Um, but if you if 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 it was a kicking competition between Pollard and, and Moanga, it would be Pollard for me. Um, I hope that the World Cup doesn't come down to uh, um, you know just penalties as the last one the last meeting between the two in the final did. Um, I'll look, I'll, I'll um, I mean South Africa have made a habit of uh, of, of 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 nicking um, the last two games by a point. Um, I, I don't think that they. I, I actually don't think they're going to win this one. I, th- I think I'm going to take New Zealand, and I'll take them by you know by a couple of points. Okay. Say 2018, something like that. New Zealand. Let's go, Nick Easter. I'll come to you next. Yeah, I mean, it's, t- it's tough. It's tough to split them. Um, South Africa obviously going for back to back, trying to match New Zealand. Um, Although they wouldn't have matched New Zealand because they would have done back-to-back losing a game in each World Cup, not being unbeaten, but uh, they're still winning two. Tougher times. There's two things. I think if New, Z- if New Zealand win this game, I think it'll be the aerial battle they win. They won the first rugby championship game, you know, first 25, 30 minutes, blitzed them, especially with the short flat kicks in behind and what have you. And you know, South Africa aren't convincing, certainly defensively, with Colby, Aronza uh, and Willemsa in the air. And obviously that was massively exposed and they were bettered by by, by England. Um, and with Geordie Barrett and Mwanga able to, to put those kicks on a sixpence um, with Jordan, Talaya and, uh, and Bowden Barrett as well. And you saw how well Bowden Barrett kicked against Ireland, you know, with the kicking game that against Ireland. I think that will be um, what exposes South Africa um, for New Zealand to get on the scoreboard more than more than New Zealand's handling game, which South Africa are used to dealing with. It's World Cups that you know there's less time, there's more pressure. Um, however, there's something in my head just saying those New Zealand reserve props, especially in the last half hour, just ain't up to it. Just ain't up to it, and um, you know that 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 bomb squad. I, I think could rip through the Kiwis in the last 20, 20 minutes um, in the forwards. Um, so I'm going to go South Africa 20, New Zealand 17. 2-1 in favour of New Zealand. Very good. I, I think that point about the scrummaging and the New Zealand props is a very interesting one. Um, might just sway me a certain way as well, but we'll get to that in a second. Pal. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm with Nick Easter. To be fair, um, I, the the thing that's always that, that I've had a problem with with New Zealand, and this might be this might be wrong, but it was certainly off the back of watching uh, the game at Twickenham and uh, their opener against France, is that they when they've been in a, a really intense game, and obviously they did a brilliant job against Ireland. But once they went 13-0 up in that game and in the other two games that I just mentioned, their command of possession and their ability to retain the ball comfortably has not always been uh has, has not always been right there. And I think ultimately it, it will give South Africa the instinct that they can control the game from the forwards and then kind of dictate the way it goes. And New Zealand can hit them with a few sucker punches. Um and there will be periods where they do control the game. But I just think that South Africa will have that control for longer. They'll be in the contest with 20 minutes to go. And I do think the bomb squad will do it again. I hope not, though. And that's not because I, I dislike South Africa at, at all. It's just be, it's just that I don't like the idea 
of three replacement front rows winning a team of World Cup. And I'm so so in that regard, if it is 50-50 with 20 minutes to go, I would I would hope New Zealand comes through. But I just I just think it might be too predictable, but I just think the same thing will happen again. Yeah, interesting. I, I'm just going to what one thing I'm going to put in there. I, I think that Fletcher Newell, who is the um, uh, the New Zealand backup tight head, I think that he's vulnerable. I don't think that the other guy is Tamati Williams. I think will come through as a great New Zealand prop. Yeah, not not. No, I'm not saying instantly, but over the next. Yeah, it's at this. It's at this stage, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well. I guess that remains to be seen. Look, well, so Nick Powell, you're going South Africa from what you were saying. I don't think you officially said it. Yeah, but... I'm going to say South Africa by three. Okay, so we uh, will... and yeah, exactly. It would be it would be in and around Nick Easter's prediction, the exact yeah. number. Um, right, so you've got to say 1916. 1916. For the sake of argument, let's just say. <laughs> shall we? Yeah. Yeah, that leaves you sitting on the fence, Ollie. No, it doesn't. No, I I was ready to say my prediction at the start. I just decided not to because uh, I wanted to see say, see which where you guys were going. I'm I'm exactly the same. I echo um, the two necks, not Kano, uh, and I think it's going to be a case of South Africa seeing it out thanks to that power off the bench. So I'll go, I'll go twenty one eighty. So. <laughs> Um, that's pretty much given. That's pretty much given Nicky so no chance of winning the. <laughs> we surrounded, <laughs> unless it's exactly the same score on as two thousand three. All right, I know. I'll, I'll go. I'll go South Africa by five. So I'll go twenty fifteen. Okay. Um, also, we've got Brendan Venter coming on the podcast on Monday. So obviously, in the interest of that podcast episode being a smiley one and not a sad one, we're I think we're all back in South Africa. You don't uh, want him to be angry. No, you don't. <laughs> he, think, he, he thinks about things deeply when he's angry. <laughs> Reference, that is. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to mention that interview. To, it's, it'll be so tempting, but yeah. All right, guys, we'll wrap up there. Um, World Cup final and, of course, third place playoff to look forward to before the big tournament review next week. So, Nick Easter, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I really appreciate your time. I apologise that we slightly ran over, but yeah, enjoy the final and I'll catch you soon. Uh, thanks very much for having me. Love, love chatting. Love chatting about it. The rugby just keeps on coming at the moment and the Guinness Six Nations is just around the corner and will be upon us before we know it. Make it a year to remember by booking official hospitality with our friends at Keith Prowse, principal sales partner to England Rugby Hospitality. Their matchday experiences have a whole range of incredible features from complimentary bars to menus designed by Michelin star chefs, namely Tom Kerridge, Ollie Dabu and Tommy Banks. So book your experience now and make memories that will last a lifetime. Visit keithprowse.co.uk forward slash Twickenham now. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Rugby Paper Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe on whichever podcast platform you use and recommend the show to your friends. The Rugby Paper is available to buy every Sunday. And to make sure you don't miss it, subscribe through our print, digital and online options at therugbypaper.co.uk forward slash subscriptions. That's therugbypaper.co.uk forward slash subscriptions to get all our content for as little as 14p per day.